Chapter Twenty Four of the Return of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Return of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twenty Four: How Tarzan Came Again to Opar. When Clayton returned to the shelter and found Jane Porter was missing, he became frantic with fear and grief. He found Monsieur Thuran quite rational the fever having left him with the surprising suddenness which is one of its peculiarities. The Russian, weak and exhausted, still lay upon his bed of grasses within the shelter. When Clayton asked him about the girl, he seemed surprised to know that she was not there. "'I have heard nothing unusual,' he said, "'but then I have been unconscious much of the time. Had it not been for the man's very evident weakness, Clayton should have suspected him of having sinister knowledge of the girl's whereabouts.' but he could see that Thurin lacked sufficient vitality even to descend, unaided, from the shelter. He could not, in his present physical condition, have harmed the girl, nor could he have climbed the rude ladder back to the shelter. Until dark the Englishman searched the nearby jungle for a trace of the missing one, or a sign of the trail of her abductor, but though the spoor left by the fifty frightful men, unversed in woodcraft as they were would have been as plain to the densest denizen of the jungle as a city street to the englishman yet he crossed and recrossed it twenty times without observing the slightest indication that many men had passed that way but a few short hours since as he searched clayton continued to call the girl's name aloud but the only result of this was to attract numa the lion Fortunately, the man saw the shadowy form worming its way toward him in time to climb into the branches of a tree before the beast was close enough to reach him. This put an end to his search for the balance of the afternoon as the lion paced back and forth beneath him until dark. Even after the beast had left, Clayton dared not descend into the awful blackness beneath him, and so he spent a terrifying and hideous night in the tree. The next morning he returned to the beach, relinquishing the last hope of succoring Jane Porter. During the week that followed, Monsieur Thuran rapidly regained his strength, lying in the shelter while Clayton hunted food for both. The men never spoke, except as necessity demanded. Clayton now occupied the section of the shelter which had been reserved for Jane Porter, and only saw the Russian when he took food or water to him or performed the other kindly offices which common humanity required. When Thuron was again able to descend in search of food, Clayton was stricken with fever. For days he lay tossing in delirium and suffering, but not once did the Russian come near him. Food the Englishman could not have eaten, but his craving for water amounted practically to torture. Between the recurrent attacks of delirium, weak though he was, he managed to reach the brook once a day and fill a tiny can that had been among the few appointments of the lifeboat. Thurin watched him on these occasions with an expression of malignant pleasure. He seemed really to enjoy the suffering of the man, who, despite the just contempt in which he held him, had ministered to him to the best of his ability while he lay suffering the same agonies. At last Clayton became so weak that he was no longer able to descend from the shelter. For a day he suffered for water without appealing to the Russian, but finally, unable to endure it longer, he asked Thurin to fetch him a drink. The Russian came to the entrance to Clayton's room, a dish of water in his hand. A nasty grin contorted his features. "'Here is water,' he said. "'But first let me remind you that you maligned me before the girl, that you kept her to yourself and would not share her with me.' Clayton interrupted him. "'Stop!' 
he cried. Stop! What manner of cur are you that you traduce the character of a good woman whom we believe dead? God, I was a fool ever to let you live. You are not fit to live even in this vile land. Here is your water, said the Russian. All you will get. And he raised the basin to his lips and drank. What was left he threw out upon the ground below. Then he turned and left the sick man. Clayton rolled over and, burying his face in his arms, gave up the battle. The next day Thurin determined to set out toward the north along the coast, for he knew that eventually he must come to the habitations of civilized men. At least he could be no worse off than he was here, and furthermore the ravings of the dying Englishman were getting on his nerves. So he stole Clayton's spear and set off upon his journey, he would have killed the sick man before he left had it not occurred to him that it would really have been a kindness to do so. That same day he came to a little cabin by the beach, and his heart filled with renewed hope as he saw this evidence of the proximity of civilization, for he thought it but the outpost of a nearby settlement, had he known to whom it belonged, and that its owner was at that very moment but a few miles inland, Nicholas Rokoff would have fled the place as he would a pestilence. But he did not know, and so he remained for a few days to enjoy the security and comparative comforts of the cabin. Then he took up his northward journey once more. In Lord Tennington's camp preparations were going forward to build permanent quarters, and then to send out an expedition of a few men to the north in search of relief. As the days passed, without bringing the longed-for succor, Hope that Jane Porter, Clayton, and Monsieur Thurin had been rescued began to die. No one spoke of the matter longer to Professor Porter, and he was so immersed in his scientific dreaming that he was not aware of the elapse of time. Occasionally he would remark that within a few days they should certainly see a steamer drop anchor off their shore, and that then they should all be reunited happily. Sometimes he spoke of it as a train— and wondered if it were being delayed by snowstorms. "'If I didn't know the dear old fellow so well by now,' Tennington remarked to Miss Strong, "'I should be quite certain that he was uh, not quite right, don't you know?' "'If it were not so pathetic it would be ridiculous,' said the girl sadly. "'I, who have known him all my life, know how he worships Jane, but to others it must seem that he is perfectly callous to her fate.' It is only that he is so absolutely impractical that he cannot conceive of so real a thing as death unless nearly certain proof of it is thrust upon him. You'd never guess what he was about yesterday, continued Tennington. I was coming in alone from a little hunt when I met him walking rapidly along the game trail that I was following back to camp. His hands were clasped beneath the tails of his long black coat, and his top hat was set firmly down upon his head. As with eyes bent upon the ground he hastened on, probably to some sudden death had I not intercepted him. "'And where in the world are you bound, Professor?' I asked him. "'I am going into town, Lord Tennington,' he said, as seriously as possible, "'to complain to the postmaster about the rural free delivery service we are suffering from here.' "'Why, sir, I haven't had a piece of mail in weeks. "'There should be several letters for me from Jane. "'The matter must be reported to Washington at once.' 
"'And would you believe it, Miss Strong?' continued Tennington. "'I had the very deuce of a job to convince the old fellow "'that there was not only no rural free delivery, but no town, "'and that he was not even on the same continent as Washington, "'nor in the same hemisphere. "'When he did realize, he commenced to worry about his daughter. "'I think it is the first time that he really has appreciated our position here, "'or the fact that Miss Porter may not have been rescued.' "'I hate to think about it,' said the girl, "'and yet I can think of nothing else than the absent members of our party.' "'Let us hope for the best,' replied Tennington. "'You yourself have set us each a splendid example of bravery, "'for in a way your loss has been the greatest.' "'Yes,' she replied. "'I could have loved Jane Porter no more had she been my own sister.' Tennington did not show the surprise he felt. That was not at all what he meant. He had been much with this fair daughter of Maryland since the wreck of the Lady Alice, and it had recently come to him that he had grown much more fond of her than would prove good for the peace of his mind, for he recalled almost constantly now the confidence which Monsieur Thurin had imparted to him that he and Miss Strong were engaged. He wondered if, after all, Thurin had been quite accurate in his statement. He had never seen the slightest indication on the girl's part of more than ordinary friendship. "'And then, in Monsieur Thurin's loss, if they are lost, you would suffer a severe bereavement,' he ventured. She looked up at him quickly. "'Monsieur Thurin had become a very dear friend,' she said. "'I liked him very much, though I have known him but a short time.' "'Then you were not engaged to marry him?' he blurted out. "'Heavens, no!' she cried. "'I did not care for him at all in that way.' There was something that Lord Tennington wanted to say to Hazel Strong. He wanted very badly to say it, and to say it at once. But somehow the words stuck in his throat. He started lamely a couple of times, cleared his throat, became red in the face, and finally ended by remarking that he hoped the cabins would be finished before the rainy season commenced. But though he did not know it, he had conveyed to the girl the very message he intended, and it left her happy happier than she had ever before been in all her life. Just then further conversation was interrupted by the sight of a strange and terrible-looking figure which emerged from the jungle just south of the camp. Tennington and the girl saw it at the same time. The Englishman reached for his revolver, but when the half-naked bearded creature called his name aloud and came running toward them, he dropped his hand and advanced to meet it. None would have recognized in the filthy, emaciated creature covered by a single garment of small skins the immaculate Monsieur Thurin the party had last seen upon the deck of the Lady Alice. Before the other members of the little community were apprised of his presence, Tennington and Miss Strong questioned him regarding the other occupants of the missing boat. "'They are all dead,' replied Thurin. "'The three sailors died before we made land.' Miss Porter was carried off into the jungle by some wild animal while I was lying delirious with fever. Clayton died of the same fever but a few days since, and to think that all this time we have been separated but by a few miles, scarcely a day's march, it is terrible. How long Jane Porter lay in the darkness of the vault beneath the temple in the ancient city of Opar she did not know. For a time she was delirious with fever, but after this passed she commenced slowly to regain her strength. Every day the woman who brought her food beckoned to her to her eyes, but for many days the girl could only shake her head to indicate that she was too weak. 
but eventually she was able to gain her feet, and then to stagger a few steps by supporting herself with one hand upon the wall. Her captors now watched her with increasing interest. The day was approaching, and the victim was gaining in strength. Presently the day came, and a young woman whom Jane Porter had not seen before came with several others to her dungeon. Here some sort of ceremony was performed, that it was of a religious nature the girl was sure, and so she took new heart, and rejoiced that she had fallen among people upon whom the refining and softening influence of religion evidently had fallen. They would treat her humanely, of that she was now quite sure. And so, when they led her from her dungeon through long dark corridors, and up a flight of concrete steps to a brilliant courtyard, she went willingly, even gladly, for was she not among the servants of God? It might be, of course, that their interpretation of the supreme being differed from her own, but that they owned a God was sufficient evidence to her that they were kind and good. But when she saw a stone altar in the center of the courtyard, and dark brown stains upon it and the nearby concrete floor, she began to wonder and to doubt, and as they stooped and bound her ankles and secured her wrists behind her, her doubts were turned to fear. A moment later, as she was lifted and placed supine across the altar's top, hope left her entirely, and she trembled in an agony of fright. During the grotesque dance of the votaries which followed, she lay frozen in horror, nor did she require the sight of the thin blade in the hands of the high priestess as it rose slowly above her to enlighten her further as to her doom. As the hand began its descent, Jane Porter closed her eyes and sent up a silent prayer to the maker she was soon to face. Then she succumbed to the strain upon her tired nerves and swooned. Day and night Tarzan of the Apes raced through the primeval forest toward the ruined city in which he was positive the woman he loved lay either a prisoner or dead. In a day and a night he covered the same distance that the fifty frightful men had taken the better part of a week to traverse, for Tarzan of the Apes traveled along the middle terrace high above the tangled obstacles that impede progress upon the ground. The story the young bull-ape had told made it clear to him that the girl captive had been Jane Porter, for there was not another small white she in all the jungle. The bulls he had recognized from the ape's crude description as the grotesque parodies upon humanity who inhabit the ruins of Opar, and the girl's fate he could picture as plainly as though he were an eyewitness to it. When they would lay her across that trim altar he could not guess, but that her dear frail body would eventually find its way there he was confident. But finally, after what seemed long ages to the impatient ape-man, he topped the barrier cliffs that hemmed the desolate valley, and below him lay the grim and awful ruins of the now hideous city of Opar. At a rapid trot he started across the dry and dusty boulder-strewn ground toward the goal of his desires. Would he be in time to rescue? He hoped against hope. At least he could be revenged, and in his wrath it seemed to him that he was equal to the task of wiping out the entire population of that terrible city. It was nearly noon when he reached the great boulder at the top of which terminated the secret passage to the pits beneath the city. Like a cat he scaled the precipitous sides of the frowning granite kopje. A moment later he was running through the darkness of the long, straight tunnel that led to the treasure vault. Through this he passed, then on and on, until at last he came to the well-like shaft upon the opposite side of which lay the dungeon with the false wall. 
As he paused a moment upon the brink of the well, a faint sound came to him through the opening above. His quick ears caught and translated it. It was the dance of death that preceded a sacrifice, and the sing-song ritual of the high priestess. He could even recognize the woman's voice. Could it be that the ceremony marked the very thing he had so hastened to prevent? A wave of horror swept over him. Was he, after all, to be just a moment too late? Like a frightened deer, he leaped across the narrow chasm to the continuation of the passage beyond. At the false wall he tore like one possessed to demolish the barrier that confronted him. With giant muscles he forced the opening, thrusting his head and shoulders through the first small hole he made, and carrying the balance of the wall with him, to clatter resoundingly upon the cement floor of the dungeon. With a single leap he cleared the length of the chamber and threw himself against the ancient door, but here he stopped. The mighty bars upon the other side were proof even against such muscles as his. It needed but a moment's effort to convince him of the futility of endeavoring to force that impregnable barrier. There was but one other way, and that led back through the long tunnels to the boulder a mile beyond the city's walls, and then back across the open as he had come to the city first with his waziri. He realized that to retrace his steps and enter the city from above ground would mean that he would be too late to save the girl, if it were indeed she who lay upon the sacrificial altar above him, but there seemed no other way, and so he turned and ran swiftly back into the passageway beyond the broken wall. At the well he heard again the monotonous voice of the high priestess, and as he glanced aloft the opening twenty feet above seemed so near that he was tempted to leap for it in a mad endeavor to reach the inner courtyard that lay so near. If he could but get one end of his grass rope caught upon some projection at the top of that tantalizing aperture, in the instant's pause and thought an idea occurred to him. He would attempt it. Turning back to the tumbled wall, he seized one of the large flat slabs that had composed it. Hastily making one end of his rope fast to the piece of granite, he returned to the shaft, and coiling the balance of the rope on the floor beside him, the ape-man took the heavy slab in both hands, and swinging it several times to get the distance and the direction fixed, he let the weight fly up at a slight angle, so that, instead of falling straight back into the shaft again, it grazed the far edge, tumbling over into the courtyard beyond. Tarzan dragged for a moment upon the slack end of the rope until he felt that the stone was lodged with fair security at the shaft's top. Then he swung out over the black depths beneath. The moment his full weight came upon the rope he felt it slip from above. He waited there in awful suspense as it dropped in little jerks, inch by inch. The stone was being dragged up the outside of the masonry surrounding the top of the shaft, would it catch at the very edge, or would his weight drag it over to fall upon him as he hurtled into the unknown depths below? End of chapter 24